ask you to open up your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Familiar passage, the parable of the prodigal son today. And while you're turning there, I just want to note um, that uh, my thinking on this passage has been heavily influenced by um, Pastor Tim Keller. He's a PCA pastor in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, he wrote a, a book uh, on this parable called the parable, or excuse me, called the Prodigal God. And so I'd commend that book to you, and just want to sort of cite my sources here and let you know that uh, that's been a big influence on on the preparation of the sermon. So anyway, the look with me, please, at Luke chapter fifteen. We're going to read verses one and two of fifteen, and we're, then we're going to jump down to verse eleven and read through the end of the chapter. So this is God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older, bro- his older son was in the field. And he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, who you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come to you today and, and Lord, ask for mercy. We ask for help as we come to your word. We pray that you would speak to us from it. Lord, I know that um, we are all in different places this morning. That many of us, some of us here are uh, delighted to be here. Some of us here are heavy, uh, weighed, heavily weighed down by burdens and, and fears. Some of us here um, are just counting down the minutes until this is over. And so, Lord, I pray where, where each one of us is this morning that you would uh, speak to us where we are, that you would uh, speak to us from your word. 
uh, that you would show us the gospel, that you would show us your son Jesus, and that we would be changed by what we see. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I was reading um, something online a little while back about uh, how we, we, we English speakers have broken the English language. And uh, the, the uh, article that was cited as evidence for this, that if you go to Google, and if you, if you type in, like, define the word literally, define literally, that one of the, the informal usage of literally can now mean, uh, you know, to say, to use the word, like, for emphasis, even when it's not literal. So, in other words, you can use the word literally to mean the exact opposite of literally. Um, and I think if you think about it, we, we do this, we, we actually speak this way a lot, right? You might hear someone telling a story and they say, I was literally sweating bullets. What? No, you aren't. <laughs> um, but, but we kind of use the words like that. And that's kind of the way the English language works. It's very, it's very fluid, right? It's, it's, it's sort of, sh- it's always shifting and morphing and, and kind of to the way that we use it. Um, and so there's a lot of words that, that mean one thing but slowly start to take on other meanings and other connotations um, depending on how they're used and depending on the associations that sort of get attached to them. And another word is actually the word prodigal. Um, and that word originated in the mid-1500s, and it means uh, an extravagant or lavish spender, right? Someone who sort of spends extravagantly. Uh, that's what prodigal means, and it was very quickly attached to this parable because the word prodigal doesn't appear anywhere in the passage that's just kind of what we have traditionally called it um, from way back when Um, and you know initially you can see that that term prodigal refers to the younger son who who wastefully and extravagantly spends all of his wealth and 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 spins through it Um, but the word because of its kind of because of its connection to this parable in fact i don't think i ever hear the word prodigal that's not somehow connected to this parable because of its connection the word prodigal has has also started to kind of mean wayward and you can kind of hear that sometimes someone might you know be gone for a while and they come back and you say oh the prodigal son has returned you know like this wayward person has finally come back to us um and so it can you know it can be used sort of in different ways i think um, and for many years, I actually thought the word prodigal meant wayward. I thought that's what it was, what, what the word referred to. But if we're going to use that definition, that prodigal means wayward, you know, really we could, call this, uh, we could call this parable the parable of the prodigal sons. Because both of the sons are sort of wayward. Both of the sons have diverted from the true path and have, have gone down false paths. Both of these sons um, have, are, are sort of lost in different ways. <clears throat> And so, uh, you know, even though they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum, they're still both sort of missing the mark. And so I want us to consider that this morning. Um, I think what we see here is that Jesus is kind of teaching us about three different views of salvation, okay? There's, there's, and Jesus kind of presents one from each son, and he kind of challenges them with the truth. He challenges them with the gospel. And so this morning, that, that will be our three points. We'll look at the younger brother, we'll look at the older brother, and then we'll look at uh, Jesus' uh, view of salvation. And so first, let's consider the younger brother. Well, what's his view of salvation? Well, first of all, I don't think the younger brother would use the word salvation, okay? But what, what, would, he, what would be his definition of fulfillment? What would be his answer to the meaning of life? What would be uh, his uh, key to happiness? Well, I think clearly the answer in our passage is, is for him, the answer would be pleasure. The answer would be fun, Right? Um, now, here we are, 4th of July weekend, uh, Sunday morning, 
Um, I don't think if you're if, if you're here this morning, I, I don't think that you probably are tempted too much to to follow the younger brother. There's not a lot of younger brother types come to church Fourth of July weekend um, on on a Sunday morning. Okay, so uh, but still, uh, you know, maybe in your younger days, maybe at some point in your life, you were like the younger brother and you sort of lived life. Uh, your, your view of life was that speed lived, you know, pursuing the most, the maximum amount of pleasure as possible uh, to get the most fun out of it. You know, that you, or maybe you know people like this, people who, uh, their, their, you know, their goal is to, to have a good time. Their goal is uh, self-discovery. Uh, their goal is uh, personal pleasure all the time. Um, and that certainly is, I think, a common sort of philosophy of life for many people outside the church. That's certainly uh, something I think we see in our culture today. But according to Luke 15, that's nothing new, right? It's, it's, not some, it's not unique to 21st century America. We see, even back in the first century, that there were people uh, who were living life that way, who, who, desired, who wanted to live life you know, in a hedonistic sort of way, pursuing pleasure above all else. And so that's what we see the younger brother doing here. Uh, he wants to have a good time. He wants to have fun. Notice what he does. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, you know, sometimes when we read the Bible, like things in the first century, you know, there's such a kind of gap between our day and their day that we might not realize sort of how awkward or or we might not realize whether something is common or uncommon, right? Uh, We might not realize, was it common for, for sons to do this, to go to their father and say, hey, I want to cash in my chips early. Give me my inheritance now, and you know, I'll just be on my way. Was that a common thing? No, not at all. Actually, it was very uncommon. It was a very unusual thing, and it would have been considered highly inappropriate. It would have been considered extremely disrespectful uh, for a son to say this to his father because what the younger son is in essence saying is this. He's saying, Dad, uh, I w- basically, I wish you were dead, and I wish that I had your stuff. Okay? That, that's kind of in essence what he's saying. Um, perhaps you can <clears throat> imagine, you know, a modern day sort of correlation, a rough correlation of this. You know, you can think about like a kid, a young kid walking around his grandparents' house and saying something and, and picking something off the shelf and being like, wow, this looks so cool. Hey, grandma, when you die, can I have this? You know, and you're like mortified that your child would say that. Um, and, you know, th- because it seems like the kid is, is sort of just counting on the days until the grandmother dies so they can kind of take the stuff away, right? Um, that would be kind of like a similar thing. The, the, the son is like the younger son is saying, "Look, um, I, I'm tired of you. I just want the stuff. I just want your stuff. I just want what belongs to me. Okay, I want to. I want to. I want uh, what's mine. I want to get going." But despite this extremely disrespectful request, the father grants it. And now consider how difficult it would have been for the father to grant this request. Okay, it's not like he could just go to the bank and take a third of his money out because in those days. You know, the, the firstborn son would get a double portion, right? So if there's two sons, like in our story, the firstborn son would get two-thirds of everything, and the younger son would get a third, right? And so it's not like they could just go withdraw a third of their money at the ATM. Um, instead, they had to, all their wealth was in livestock and land, and so they had to, you know, sell land, they had to sell animals, they, I mean, they had to kind of, you know, sort of liquidate a lot of their stuff in order to you know, get this one-third for the son. And so it was really sort of a burden and a strain for the whole family, for, for all of them, um, for all of their quality of life. They're all losing because this younger son wants out. He wants his stuff, um, and he gets it, and he wants to be on his way. And so it says not short, shortly after he gets his money, he heads to a far country, and he begins to sort of 
squander his inheritance with reckless living. And we're not sure how long he was gone. Was it months? Was it years? We don't really know. What all did it involve? We're not really sure. Later in the story, uh, the older brother, you know, I'm not sure if he's speculating or if he has some knowledge, but the older brother refers to prostitutes. And so we're not quite sure what the younger son did with his money, but we know that he, um, you know, it's like he went to Vegas and... and, uh, uh, had a had a ball or whatever. He he went and, and just tried to live live it up and do whatever wherever his desires took him, wherever his pleasure wanted to go. That's where he went. Um, and so now again, like I said, probably most of us here this morning are not tempted to you know empty the bank account and run away tomorrow and 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 just go uh, you know have a party somewhere. Um, but we may struggle in a different way, right? We may struggle with with being jealous. We may struggle with being envious of the younger brother type people that we see around us, right? We may see people around us who are sort of just living life, uh, you know, for pleasure, living life for fun, and it seems like they don't have any cares. It seems like everything's going well for them. Meanwhile, we try to live life righteously, and we are beset by trials and and troubles and tribulations, Um, and we see people around us who are, are... uh, you know, living for themselves only and are complete, you know, seem to be enjoying it, seem, seem to be having a good time, and, and their lives seem to be easy and carefree. Um, and the Bible, you know, there's several psalms, there's several parts of the Bible that refer to this sort of thing, this temptation for God's people to sort of look outside and kind of be jealous of what we might see out there. But it's important to remember that the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence, right? Sometimes things are pretty dark. Uh, For instance, let's just notice where does the younger son, where does this brother's pursuit of pleasure lead him? Well, ultimately it leads him to poverty. It leads him to destitution. It leads him to hard times. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. We read this, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And so consider this for a moment. Here's a good Jewish boy, right? He's left home. He's in a foreign country. He's now working for a Gentile, and his job is to feed pigs, right? The, the most unclean animal for a, a Jewish person. Um, his, his job is to spend all day with these pigs, and, and he, he is fallen so low that he's desiring to eat the food that pigs eat. Um, I don't have a lot of, my grandfather was a farmer, I don't have a lot of experience with, with farming and stuff, but I know that pigs eat disgusting things, okay? But he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. That's, what, that's how desperate, that's how dire his situation is. He's in a terrible position. He's at the bottom of the barrel. This is where his life's philosophy has led him. This pursuit of pleasure has led him to this moment. You know, I remember as a teenager, um, sometimes I would watch uh, those uh, those E True Hollywood stories. I don't even know if they do those anymore or, or whatever. But you know, it's 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 on the E channel, and they would have this story. It's always it's always the same story. It was like a a uh, famous musician or an actor. You know, they're they're really popular and famous. They they have a lot of success early in life, and they make a ton of money, and then they just just squander their money, right? They just waste it, and they spend it on cars, and they spend it on drugs, and they spend it on all kinds of different things, on parties. And before too long, you know, their lives are wrecked, their careers are wrecked, their health is is a wreck, their finances are a wreck, right? These stories always have a, a tragic ending. You always sort of see the rise of this person to great heights, and then just their utter fall, right, as they sort of have squandered all this, this money on, on reckless living. And... Um, 
And those stories, they, like I said, they always have a tragic ending. They were always sort of depressing to watch. And once you've seen one, you sort of know the, the template for the rest of them. Um, but that's kind of what we see with the younger brother here, right? He gets all this money at a young age. He goes out and he squanders it and it ends. Uh, it has a tragic uh, result for him. So we see the younger brother's view of salvation, right? His, his view is that we are saved by pleasure, right? That's what gives us fulfillment and satisfaction in life. So let's now turn to the older brother. Let's see what his, what's his view of salvation. What's his life philosophy? What's his view of fulfillment? Well, he kind of operates with a salvations by works kind of view, okay? Um, now, this is where uh, I think the text may start to step on our toes a little bit because, as I said, there's probably not a lot of younger brother types, right, in, in church on 4th on of July weekend, but, um, but there probably are a lot of older brother types in church on a 4th of July weekend, right, because uh, we want to follow the rules. We want to do what we're supposed to do. But uh, what's interesting here is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, right, these, both of these sons are wayward. Both of them are lost, though in very different ways. One of them is sort of the wild child. The other is on the straight and narrow. And yet both of them are guilty of the same sin, and that is loving their father's stuff more than they love their father. Okay, And we see uh, that in, in this passage as well. Look with me what happens. So the younger son returns, and there's a big party. We're going to look at that in a moment. But look at look at me look with me at what what the younger the older brother's response is when that happens in verse uh, twenty five we see this now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So here is the biggest party that the father has ever thrown, right? It is a celebration. There is music. There is dancing. There is the fattened calf, right? Save for a special occasion. And here it is. And where is his eldest son? He's out in the field pouting. He's out in the field angry. Why? Because his younger brother has already squandered his inheritance, right? Everything, that, everything that's left is now the older son's. It belongs to him. Um, and so he sees the food. He sees the, right, the animals, the fattened calf. He sees the robe and the ring. He sees all this stuff. This is all his stuff one day. It's going to be his. And it's all being used to celebrate this prodigal son, this prodigal brother of his who's returned. But he ought to be rejoicing, right? His brother has, has repented. His brother has returned. His brother was lost and is found. He was dead and is now alive. But the older brother isn't happy for the younger brother. He's angry. Um, This party ought to be his. He's the good son, right? He's always done the right thing. He's always done what he's supposed to do. He's never disobeyed. He's faithfully served his father. He should be the one receiving the party, not his younger brother. And so the older brother refuses to come into the party. He's making a statement by staying out in the field. And this, too, would have been a very disrespectful thing in, in this culture, right? Because he's standing out in the field sort of showing his disapproval of his brother, his disapproval of this party, this, his disapproval of his father as host, his father's decision to throw this party. And notice, I mean, the father comes out to extend grace to his oldest son. He comes out to the field to plead with him, 
to come inside, to, to come into the celebration. And notice what, what is the eldest son's complaint? He says basically this, Dad, I always did what I was supposed to do, and you never gave me even a young goat to share with my friends. You never gave me anything. He's mad about the stuff. He's mad about the animals. He's mad about the food, the stuff that he sees as rightfully his. He's the eldest son. He's the responsible one. He's the mature one, right? The one who keeps all the rules and does as he's instructed and told. Um, Often how the eldest children seem to be, I think. Um, And yet, what do his words reveal about his heart? It reveals that he has the same problem as his brother, that he doesn't love his father. He just wants the father's stuff. He just wants the father's, the, the animals. He wants the things. Um, this is what he cares about. If, if he loved his father, he would be delighting right now because his father was delighting that the son had returned. Um, his father was overjoyed, but the, the elder brother is not. We realize that the older brother wasn't obeying all those years because he loved his father. He was obeying because he thought this was the path, this was the way to get the stuff that he wanted. And so typically when we consider this parable, we sort of focus it on the younger brother, right? Um, and we'll talk about why that is in just a minute. Um, but I think Jesus' focus of this story actually seems to be on the older brother. Um, and the reason I say that um, is because the story ends on a cliffhanger, right? Jesus ends the story by, with, with this plea from the father to the older son. And the story just ends. We don't know what he does. We don't know what, what does the older son do. Does he stay in the field? Does he uh, come into the party? What, what's his decision going to be? And Jesus doesn't answer that for us. Um, and we'll, we'll see why that is, I think, in just a moment. So the older brother here is operating with this view, kind of a view of salvation by works, right? That if I obey the commands, he thinks, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then I'll get the stuff I want. If I follow all the rules, I'll be happy. I'll be fulfilled. But where does that lead him? It leads him to standing out in the field alone during the biggest party that his house has ever seen, right? The biggest party that's ever been in his home. Uh, a, a moment of joy for his household and his community, and he's out in the field alone. It's, it's easy, I think, for, for religious people like us to kind of drift into that sort of view, right? We kind of get in this way of thinking that, you know, being a Christian means uh, more about following certain rules, right? We, we, can, we can kind of turn the Christian life into, uh, well, you know, sort of a behavior modification, right? Well, to be a Christian means that you behave like this. Um, and that, that kind of leads us into this works-based salvation, um, now, if our pursuit of holiness and our obedience is, is not motivated by our love for God, if it's not motivated by our gratitude for what the Lord has done for us in the gospel, but if it's instead motivated for us to feel this spiritual sort of superiority or motivated uh, by us sort of going through the motions because you know, we think, well, I'll, I'll get blessed if I do this thing. If I go to church and give my tithe, then maybe God will you know, bless me in some way. Um, if, we, if that's the way that we're operating, we've missed the boat, right? Uh, we've become like this self-righteous older brother who's angry in the field, refusing to come join the celebration. Uh, now, certainly, obviously, being a Christian does mean that we live a certain way, okay? The Bible is full of commands, um, but we, we keep those commands, we obey those commands out of our love for God, out of our thanksgiving for what he's done for us, not um, as a way to feel superior to those around us, not as a way to manipulate God into giving us uh, blessings or things like that. So Jesus is telling us that neither of these brothers, sort of their natural inclinations, is correct. One brother says, hey, I'm just going to have a good time, and that's the way I'll find fulfillment. The other brother says, hey, I'm just going to follow all the rules and do everything that's expected of me, um, and, I'm, and, and that's the way I'll find fulfillment. That's the way I'll get what I need. 
Um, and I think all of us can probably, probably lean towards one side or the other on, on that spectrum, on that continuum. Um, but Jesus is saying, look, neither one of these is right. One of them will lead you to the pig trough. The other one will lead you to being in the field alone, pouting during the party. Um, and so Jesus is saying that both of these is wrong. And he, he's leading, that leads us to our final point where Jesus kind of presents, he presents the good news of the gospel. He presents the true sort of picture of salvation that we have in this story. And so we, we'll, we'll move on to that now, our third point, Jesus' view. And in order to understand what Jesus is teaching here, we need to go back, back up a little bit to the beginning of the chapter to see kind of the context, to see who, who is the audience that Jesus is, is teaching this parable to. And we see that in verse 1 of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him, eats with them. And so here we have sort of, you know, these, all these sinners and tax collectors who are kind of flocking to Jesus, and Jesus is preaching the good news to them, and many of them are, are following him. Um, and the Pharisees and scribes see this, and they're, they're frustrated. They don't, they don't like this. They're, they don't think this is appropriate behavior for Jesus. And so what we see then, in, when we look at the parable of the prodigal son, is that Jesus is using these two sons to sort of represent the people in his audience, Right? The younger brother is there as sort of a stand-in for these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these uh, sinners. Uh, the older brother is a stand-in for these scribes and Pharisees, the religious folks. Um, and he's, he's showing them these two false views of salvation. Um, and he's challenging them with this picture of the gospel. Because in Jesus' parable, only one of these brothers actually finds true salvation. Only one of them abandons his life philosophy, his view of salvation for a new one. Only one of them is changed, and that's the younger brother. And so look with me at verses 17 through 24. We read this. But when he came to himself, that's the younger brother, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's higher servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began... To celebrate, And so the younger brother sort of realizes the terrible state that he is in, right? Looking at the nasty pigs and the food that they're eating and realizes, hey, you know, my dad's employees work so much to eat better than this. Why don't I just go back and, and try to get hired on? I know I've, I've sort of given up my right as a son. I'll just go back and be a hired servant. What he really sees, he sees the truth about himself. He sees who he really is. He sees his sin. He sees his need for his father's grace and mercy. And he decides to go home and uh, plea his case to his father. And when he heads home, we find this beautiful picture of the gospel, right? The father is waiting and watching for him. And it says that while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and runs to greet him. Um, now, here again is a detail that, that might be sort of lost on us, um, you know, 20 centuries later. Um, is that in the first century, you know, landowners like this did not run. Okay, they did not run. This that, that was beneath them, you know. 
Uh, they would wear, wear these nice robes and things like that. In order to run, they'd have to sort of, you know, hitch up their robes and kind of run. It was considered sort of be undignified. You know, a landowner would never do such a thing. But here's this father, and he sees a son, the son who had said, basically, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And he sees him a long way off, and he runs to see him, and he embraces him. And his son is filthy and dirty and smells like pigs, and he embraces him and kisses him. And you sort of get the impression when you're reading the passage that the son is like, he's got this prepared speech, you know, and he's, he's like starts to go into the speech. Dad, I know I'm no longer to be called your son. Please let me be one of your hired servants. And it's almost like the father just says, you know, like cuts him off and says, no, 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 no. You know, hey, servants, bring, bring the fine robe. Bring my ring. Put shoes on his feet. Um, you know, kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And so really, when we're, when we're talking earlier about the definition of prodigal to mean extravagant spender, you know, the father is really sort of prodigal as well, right? He's sort of extravagantly and lavishly spending at the return of his son. And that's the way that God is with us. God is extravagant in giving us love and grace and mercy, uh, which is why Keller calls his book The Prodigal God, right? Because we serve a God who, is, who uh, adorns us with, with so many blessings and so many good gifts. So many, he lavishes us with gifts and with status and with love. And so this is exactly what's happening in, in Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus is, is preaching and teaching, and these um, sinners, these younger brother types, are coming to him and trusting in him and following him. And the older brother types, the Pharisees and, and the scribes, see this, and they're infuriated, right? They're, they're disgusted. Why, why would Jesus spend time with those people, with that kind of person? Why is he eating with them? And so this parable is really directed at the religious people. It's directed at the Pharisees, right? He's saying, look... These people, are, these people were dead, and now they're alive. These people were lost, and now they're found. You know, are you going to stand outside the party, or are you going to come and join us? And that's why I think Jesus leaves sort of this cliffhanger here, because he's kind of putting the story in the laps of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's putting it in the laps of the, of the uh, religious people there, of, of these older brother types, saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to... How are you going to react to this? Um, and so... You know, Jesus is warning them that they are in the most dangerous position because, precisely because they don't see the danger of it at all. Uh, and this is why Jesus ends the story this way. Um, and so he's asking them these questions. Will you, will you stay out, stand outside the kingdom or will you come in and rejoice? And so the question for us this morning is what view of salvation are we operating with? Um, are, we, are we living a life that is focused on our, primarily on our own pleasure? Um, focused on our own comfort, or uh, are we living a life that is focused on rigidly keeping the rules, uh, but our heart has grown cold in our love for God? Are, are we, are we um, a guest at this gospel party here in Luke 15, rejoicing that we've been accepted, rejoicing that we have been forgiven, rejoicing that we were lost and now we're found, that we were dead and now we are alive? Uh, so which, which, of those views, which of those views of salvation are we sort of operating with, are we living with this morning? And so there's one more question I want to um, address briefly before we wrap up um, our look at, for, at Luke 15. And that is this. Uh, my question is, who is the seeker in Luke 15? Um, if, if you're familiar with the, the, the three, there's three parables in Luke 15, right? There's the, the lost sheep, and the shepherd goes off to find the lost sheep. There's the lost coin... And the, uh, the woman looks for her lost coin and finds it. And then we have the parable of the lost son, 
But, but no one really seeks him, right? No one goes out and finds him. I mean, the son comes back and the father is there sort of looking down the road seeking him, but, but no one is actively seeking the younger brother. You know, there, there seems like there's something missing. There should be someone seeking him in the story. And the answer is that no one is. No one's seeking him. No one goes out to look for him. But someone should have, right? And I think it should have been the older brother, right? This older brother, he should have gone out and found his younger brother. He should have gone out and found this his flesh and blood, this, this one who was uh, lost. He should have gone out and brought him home and rejoiced in his homecoming. But the older brother in the story is not like that, is he? But here's the amazing thing about the gospel, is that Jesus is an older brother like that, okay? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. He's the firstborn of the new kingdom. And so there's a sense in which all of us who are believers, that Jesus is in one sense our older brother, right? He's the firstborn uh, of this new creation that God is, is, is uh, making. Um, and so though we have squandered all that we have, right? Though, though we were filthy and dirty, though we were uh, at the bottom of the barrel, Jesus, our elder brother, the true and better elder brother, he came and sought us. He came and found us. And he brought us home. And he shared his inheritance with us. And, he, and though it would cost him everything to do this, even, even his very life, he did it willingly. He did it joyfully. He is the one who seeks the lost sheep. He is the one who seeks the lost coin. He is the one who seeks the wayward sons and daughters and brings them home. He is the one who pays for the celebration. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have a, a true elder brother who came and sought us, who came while we were enemies, while we were uh, squandering, while we were um, dead and lost, that he came and found us and brought us uh, back. He brought us to life. He brought us home as sons and daughters. And we thank you, Lord, that you have welcomed us with open arms um, through the blood of Jesus and through his work. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would resist the urge to uh, fall into these other views of salvation, but that we would uh, delight and rejoice in the gospel, that we would, we would rejoice in what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would be uh, changed people uh, marked by this wonderful good news. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.